This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of having Pastor Jake Stone with us again. So, welcome to the podcast, Jake. Great to be with y'all again. Jake, today our topic is church revitalization, and we're privileged to have you uh, to come on and talk about this topic. So can you help our audience to understand what we're going to be talking about today? Church revitalization. What do we mean when we say church revitalization? I think broadly speaking, when we are dealing with the subject of church revitalization, We're thinking about a context where a church that is organized, that has been established for some period of time, has really, though, entered into a period, usually a prolonged period, of what I would term spiritual uh, decay, uh, coldness, um, really has lost the zeal and motivation and desire for biblical truth, um, what it means to be a church. Not saying that it's filled with a bunch of people who don't love Christ, who don't love one another, but just that there is there's something radically missing. And church revitalization is then a recognition of that, number one. There's a recognition that there is a problem, but the problem is not going to be solved in some pragmatic, program-driven philosophy. Instead, it is back to getting to the basics. It is getting to the gospel. It is understanding what is a church. What does it mean that we call ourselves a church, a covenant community of believers? And so church revitalization, in, in some ways, we could say it's it's like trying to breathe in new life into a person who's on life support or maybe has died. Um, if, I know that might seem graphic, but that's really what is going on in a church revitalization journey. So that's kind of a rambling answer, but that's what, what I would say is what church revitalization is. Well, one of the reasons that we we wanted to have you come on and talk about this subject is because at New Testament Baptist Church, you've kind of gone through what what we might characterize as a church revitalization. And and would you mind just sharing kind of the story and what happened and what your experience has been pastoring a church through what we would call church revitalization? Well, 
first of all, I'll say that my situation probably in many ways is unique. So I'm not here to pontificate and say that exactly what we did is how you should do it. And it's the only way that it'll happen. Uh, New Testament Baptist Church is the church that I, I grew up in. The church was organized in 1994. My mom and dad were charter members. So I was five at that time. So the history of New Testament Baptist Church, I can tell you because I've lived the whole thing uh, personally. So that gives me a little bit of a different, unique um, position on that. We were organized as in, in a mold of a landmark, independent, fundamentalist, King James only tribe. So that's what our foundation and roots were. We were in many ways, I mean, a lot of what you might deem stereotypical when it comes to rural fundamentalist churches, we probably checked a lot of the boxes off. And that it was, attendance was very small. Um, a lot of it was family. We had pastors in and out. I mean, we had, I think if I recall correctly, we had nine different pastoral terms from 1994 to 2008. So you can hear the average there. I mean, that's not even a year and a half, really. So, I mean, it was in and out. You know, I remember Al Mohler one time said that he thought the reason that most pastorates lasted two years was because most men only had two years worth of material and they ran out. And I would agree with him. I think that's pretty much what I experienced growing up is that most of those guys, that's about all they had to say. And, you know, then they left. Um, very, you know, church membership. I mean, yes, we had church membership, but what did it, did it really mean anything? I don't think so. Now we were like most churches too. We had the church covenant on the wall. That didn't mean anything to anybody. It was just there as a decoration. So, I mean, I, and, but we were there for everything. I mean, I grew up in a context where, you know, and I praise God for this, for my, for my mom and dad. I mean, when the doors were open, we were there. It didn't matter what it was. Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revival, uh, any other extra meetings, we were there. And so they instilled in me a definite belief in the importance of the church and also serving. That there's none of us who, who are too good to cut grass, clean bathrooms, vacuum, etc. That's what it means. Um. So I grew up in that context, and that's when I began in ministry. I mean, that's the world that I was in. Now, by the time that I started pastoring uh, in 2009, by that point, New Testament was down to three people. That was my mom and my dad and me. Um, the church never had much stability. We had come to find out embezzlement that had been going on for I don't know how long. Um, sometimes it seems like such a long time back, but I mean, I was an 18 year old when I actually took over the church's books. So as an 18 year old is when I started discovering, you know, thousands of dollars that had been embezzled over the years and started getting payments, pay bills that we had been told had been paid that we were months behind. And I mean, it was just, it was a mess. And I would say we were basically on death's door. I mean, you're down to just three people. You don't have much money in the bank. 
and all of that going on. And you had no, we had no pastor and nobody was really interested in pastoring us. And for the first two years of my pastoral ministry, I served at another church on the Gulf Coast and also served at New Testament. And, and basically it was to, to keep the lights on in a lot of ways. We, we believe the Lord had something for us to do. I didn't think I was the person to do it. I thought that somebody else needed to come in that wasn't really connected to the church. I knew my mom and dad were, were steadfastly committed to trying to, to serve there. But I mean, I could give you an example for two years. The way that it worked is I would preach at New Testament at 830 on Sunday morning. I went to the other church for a 1030s and a four o'clock in the afternoon service. Then I came back to New Testament at 530 that evening. And for two years there, most every time I pulled into that driveway. And there was one vehicle in the parking lot. And that was my dad's truck. And walk up there and hear my mom and dad singing, you know, waiting for me to get there. I mean, that, that was a long, that was two, two years of doing that pretty much every week. I promise you it started hitting me. What are we doing? I mean, is there any, is there anything going to happen here? And so, I mean, it was, that was difficult. I mean, I promise you won't, even to this day, the hardest sermons I, and my preaching wasn't that good back then, but the hardest sermons that I ever have delivered is when you're just standing in front of your mom and your dad preaching to them. You know, and how, what does that look like? And how do you do that? And then when you find out about expository preaching and you decide to make them your guinea pigs and preach through a book of the Bible and you pick Joshua for your first one, you know, I, I didn't do everything right by any stretch of the imagination. So, Long story short, I don't, we could be here a long time talking about all the, the history stuff, but in August of 11, so actually we're coming up this weekend will be nine years ago. I stepped down from the other church that I was at and came to be full-time at New Testament and said, look, the Lord's got something for us to do. And that first Sunday, it was August the 7th, 2011. We have Sunday morning service and it's just the three of us. And when I left that morning, driving home, I said out loud in my truck, I must be insane. I must be crazy. If I think that anything is going to happen, because it isn't, this is impossible. Um, but in the Lord's providence, we had two sisters who joined with us at the end of the month. And, and we five kind of became the, you know, we were the only members of the church for two years. And so that there, there's kind of the history of, as far as getting to that point. And so I'll stop there and let y'all ask more questions. So we'll, I'll stop there. But that's, that's where we were at. And, and basically, I, I will say this. It was kind of, it was a revitalization, but in a lot of ways, it was a replant too. I mean, and I, I told them, now, I didn't know, let me say this, I didn't know anything about church revitalization. I didn't even know that term existed in 2011, so I'll make that clear. All that I knew is I said, look, we can't change what's happened in the past. It is what it is. Let's start over. Let's look at it as just a blank slate, and let's restart things as a church and just go forward and not allow what's happened behind us enslave us, entangle us, and, and, you know, then when I came to learn about some of these terms, it's like, yeah, we, we, 
we did a church revitalization is what it ended up being. Well, this next part of the question may allow you to continue uh, where you were just at as you were talking about some of the experiences that you were going through. Our question that we have for you is what ecclesiological changes can be difficult as pastors lead to revitalization or to put it another way, what are primary and essential, essential changes needed for a healthy church? What are some hills to die on? But you kind of talk about how you had a blank slate whenever you got to this point in your church's revitalization. So feel free to take this part of the conversation wherever you want to. Okay. Well, I want to say this. I think the first non-negotiable that has to be in, well, any, any pastoral ministry, but especially if you're going into a place to re, for revitalization, is you must love the people through the word. You must be committed to biblical exposition. And I had already come to that conviction by the time we started. And now I had to grow in expository preaching and, you know, my own journey in that sense. But I always wanted to make clear this is what the word teaches. So over time, you begin to, for example, I found out about nine marks. So you start reading nine marks of a healthy church and you start seeing these texts about plurality of elders and what does biblical congregationalism look like. Now, I'll just share a little personal for me. When I came more into this revitalization, I would probably say I was less in favor of congregationalism than I am now. I would consider myself fully supportive of congregationalism. But because I grew up in some really bad congregationalism, it left a bad taste in my mouth. For example, the first church that I pastored, this is no joke. We made a motion in a second after I preached a Sunday morning sermon about buying ham instead of fried chicken for the fifth Sunday lunch, okay? Because we had to vote on that. Because the church had to vote on everything. So that's bad congregationalism. So if you come in from that world, you are like, I don't want the church to vote on anything. I'd like for the pastor and or the elders, you know, they kind of take care of it. So I had to kind of work through some of those things myself. And I, I would say I transitioned personally my own conviction from maybe being an elder ruled to an elder led congregation. So, but you can do this when we tried to practice church discipline. Okay. Which happened uh, about four and a half years into the journey. It was a very difficult experience. It was hard. It was painful. It involved a family member of our church family. Okay. And but and we had some tough meetings, but I was supported through that. And the reason was, as it was told, is that you always teach and preach the word, and we know that you're telling us what the word says we're supposed to do. And so, as long as you've got that foundation, now I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but you've got a pretty good guiding principle, and it will make an impact. Jesus said, "My sheep hear my voice." And true sheep in a church that are being fed by the word it is going to make an impact. They're going to know that this pastor cares about me because he is shepherding me through the word in the pulpit and then in, you know, discipleship. 
So that was a big thing. I mean, from day one, that was the commitment. I was going to preach through books of the Bible. And my, mod and my template for most of the time has been New Testament book, one service, Old Testament book for another service. So that prepared us to begin to comprehend different things about membership and what a church looks like. And there was good resources, nine marks, can't recommend them enough. Everything that they provide and, and give and thinking through. Um, I mean, I devoured nine marks for the church, the church, the gospel made visible. I used those things to teach on Sunday evenings for about a year. So I did a whole Sunday evening, I think in 2013, where we, you know, biblical church. What is a biblical church? I taught on elders. We didn't have anybody at that time ready to be an elder in the church. But I said, we need to go ahead and be prepared. I need, we need to go ahead and be equipped. And I think that's one thing that sometimes guys might think, well, why do I want to teach on that if we're not even really there yet? And, well, if you're going somewhere who hasn't had any experience with these things, don't think you're going to teach it one time and everybody's going to say, oh, we agree with that preacher. Let's do it. You're probably going to have to teach on it a few times. So you need to go ahead and start sowing those seeds and making people think, you know, it's not that you stand up and teach on elders for three weeks and the next week say, all right, are we ready now to vote in elders? But you teach them. And so they're starting to think and ask questions. I think something that a pastor must do is be very intentional. And one thing that I did early on now, you got to think through how you're going to do it because it can get open a can of worms. But I always have had times on Sunday evenings and Wednesday nights where people could ask me any questions they wanted to on anything that I've taught, I've preached, maybe just in their own reading. Now, sometimes I've gotten a few, you know, kind of off the subject questions. I didn't know where they came from. But for the most part, it's usually been in connection with something that I've preached or taught. And that makes it feel, I think, that it helps a congregation see that the pastor is not up there in an ivory tower and is just telling you everything that he thinks, and he's right, but he's really wanting you to see, are you comprehending? Does it make sense? Am I being clear in my preaching? Am I doing what I need to be in teaching? And so that was kind of the formula. I had to learn. I didn't have anybody. Look, I grew up, and, and I had this too. As I said, we were at everything growing up. I didn't know these things. And it kind of came to me, there can be a lot of people who've been in church for a long time. They may not have had anybody teach them this stuff. So I can't act like everybody knows. You must begin at a premise almost that they probably have really no exposure whatsoever to a lot of these truths. It's your responsibility to know them and feed them, not change them. Because if it's just about you changing them, then you've got a personality cult, and it's just about them conforming to you. You've got to get to know them, what they're thinking, what's their history. You know, if, you've, if you're walking in somewhere, let's say it's a church, been there for 70 years, okay? There's 70 years of things that's happened before you got there. And... It is the height of arrogance if you think that 70 years that preceded you doesn't matter. It does. Those 70 years have created and maintained, good or bad, a fabric and a DNA in that place. 
So you need to know what that fabric and that DNA is. And if it hasn't come across yet in everything that I've said, this means that you've got to be probably committed to being somewhere for some time. Because if you think you're going to come in here in two and three years and just, you know, totally change and transform and, you know, you go from whatever you think this church is bad to now it's the Metropolitan Tabernacle and you're Spurgeon, you know, that's not happening. You know, that's just not happening. And so it needs to, you have to be committed. I, I would really say that. And that was kind of where I, I mean, I was when, when this started in 2011 is, you know, now I didn't know what was going to happen. And I certainly had no idea the, the nine years that have transpired would transpire the way they have. But I did see myself wanting to be there for the long term. And I thought that was the only, maybe that was pragmatic, but for a church that had went through so many different pastors in a few years, the church needed some stability. And one of the biggest ways for stability was going to be for somebody whose name was on that sign for longer than 18 months. And so I would say that's some important things. Um, hills to die on. So let me, let me talk about that. Not everything is a hill to die on. I think preaching the word expositionally, that's a hill you better be willing to die on. Um, you know, if you got people saying, I, I, I wish you would do more, you know, a series through a movie or, you know, more thematic, topical sermons on the family or finances, etc. You know, that's one that you're going to have to really stand firm on. Worship. Now, I understand that it probably is going to take some time of trying to bring worship into more of a regulated by the scripture model. But I think that you need to, for example, a pastor being involved in the music. Okay. That doesn't mean that you run the music, so to speak, if there's somebody who does the music, but you need to show that you're, you're interested and you care that all this needs to be tied in. Add scripture readings. If you don't do that, read more of the scripture, invest more in public scripture reading. We have lost that. It's very sad to think about in many churches, many Baptist churches, how little time is given to the actual reading of the Bible. That's something. I think membership. Now, again, let's say you walk in somewhere, they got 150 members and 50 people are coming. You can't two weeks in say, all right, we're getting rid of the 100 people here that nobody knows where they are. That's going to take, that, that's going to take some time. But here's the balance. It will take some time. But you must be proactive. You can't just say, well, we'll get there eventually when they're ready. Well, if that's your posture, you probably never get ready because you'll just keep kicking the can down the road because it's going to be controversial and you don't really want to deal with that. You have to prepare them. You know, you may not be able to go. I preached nearly four years through Matthew. Looking back now, I probably should have waited a little bit before I started that journey. OK, but you have to know your congregation. If they've never been exposed to expository preaching, you do not need to spend four years preaching through a book. Not at all. You need to build towards that. You need to equip them. But again, that's the pastor's responsibility. He must do that. Um, so that, that, would be, that would kind of be some hills. Um, I'll say something else, too. You've got to pour into men. You've got to pour into men in your church. The church revitalization success stories that I'm aware of 
are due to men being equipped and leading their families and leading the church. So maybe you've got 20 men. You may say, preacher, 15 of them could care less. All right, we got five, pour into the five. You got three, pour into three. You got one, pour into the one. Little is much. God is in it. He works. And that one-on-one discipleship with one brother, you have no idea where that might go. We have to do those things. And you've also got to be patient. From 2011 to 2015, we had one true conversion and, and one baptism and three, I think, three additions people coming into the church. So numbers-wise, as far as membership, we didn't grow much. And I struggled a long time because that's always what's on your on your back is, you know, how many you're running, how many people you got, and that becomes the, you know, the metric of success. And I really thought for the first three to four years, I was spinning my wheels. I didn't know if I was, we were even really doing anything, making a difference or anything. Looking back now, we've made so many shifts in our DNA. We went from the King James to the ESV. I started teaching the doctrines of grace. I found out about the 1689 Confession and started finding out some about this Baptist history stuff and started sharing that. I found out about nine marks. And, you know, and so we're teaching all those things, and that became the DNA of the church in that period. And then the Lord blessed that we had a family come in at the end of 2014, that, that brother's now my other elder. A, a godsend who has been used greatly, he and his family, and ministering and him and pastoring and shepherding me and us as a congregation. I didn't know who he was. We had met one time earlier that year at a church that I preached at. They were looking for a reformed church because their church had disbanded. And God began to mold, and we, then we started seeing some more people converted. Um, more people added. It's not been easy. This has been the hardest year of ministry for me personally, for us as a church, as it is for everybody with this COVID stuff. Um, we've seen people walk away from the faith. Okay. Sometimes people might think, gee, if you're a 1689 Reformed Baptist church, you must have everything figured out and everything goes smooth and well. No, it does not. You know, there's heartache too here. Um, but I, I would say though, just, you know, continuing to press forward, being committed to the word, being committed to teaching your people sound doctrine. And resisting the notion that they can't understand theology or they can't understand doctrine or church history doesn't really matter to them. We have to be proactive. And um, so... There's a lot of thoughts, so I'll just go from there. Well, yeah, I mean, you you covered a lot of ground in that question, and you somewhat touched on the next thing we're going to be talking about because it's very much related. I mean, you are a relatively young man yourself, and, and Austin and I are relatively younger men compared compared to you, and, and there's temptations coming into 
an established church, your situation a little bit different than than the situations Austin and I have found ourselves in. Um, what things are important? Some of the things you mentioned are important, but you also kind of qualified it by saying they may not be changed right away or need to be changed right away. But what are some of these important things that that when a pastor first comes in, aren't hills to die on. They aren't something that right away you need to die on that hill, even if later you need to be proactive and, and push for change. What are some of the things that are like that within that category? Okay, so I'll go ahead and be controversial here for a moment, and, and, and I'll use this as, as an example. Okay, and if anybody from New Testament listens to this, they'll know exactly my stance on this, and so it won't surprise anybody. And it's not that it's a controversy for us, but I'll just give his example. I am not a fan of special music. And what I mean by that is I do not believe that it is biblically consistent in my understanding of worship on the Lord's Day corporately to have solos or choirs. And there's a time when there are just a one or a few people singing and the rest of everybody is just watching. Okay. I don't see that. I think congregational worship means that we are worshiping together as a congregation. Now, if I were to go step in to a church and typical Baptist church does have special music, usually every Sunday, that's not going to be the hill that I die on. I'm not going to come in here and say, from now on, we will have no more special music. Okay. Now, I think that I'm going to be involved in knowing what that special music is. It is my responsibility to make sure that truth is being taught. So I need to know, is this song biblical or not? Um, so that's something that I would keep in mind. So there's one. Here's another one. Patriotic services. Okay. That's a little more of a dicey one. Because I do think there's a sense in which that is a hill to fight on. But you've got to be, I think, wise about it. And again, that's the teaching thing. There may be some things that happen the first year or two that you don't like. You just got to swallow them. You know? Maybe when it's happening, you just pray to yourself like Nehemiah, you know, Lord, help me. Let us one day be past this. So those would be some examples. Now, I think that you can do things to help steer in a direction. But that's what it's got to be. It's going to have to be gently guiding. Um, I'll give another example. Let's say that you, you, you hold to the 1689. And you walk into a church that they don't have anything. Well, I, I don't think pushing for the 1689 is the first thing you need to do. If it's a Southern Baptist affiliated church and they, they've never adopted the Baptist faith and message 2000, encourage them to do that. Teach through it. Better yet, if you're at an older church, what, do what you can to dig through the minutes Find out what history you can. They may have adopted. They probably did. They're over 100 years old. I pretty much would guarantee money that they adopted a statement of faith of some confession when they organized and a covenant because that's what Baptist churches did. 
Um, so make them aware of that. Make them maybe use the New Hampshire Confession, which is a shorter confession that's solid and good. But don't think you know I've got to make them 1689, okay? Because that's not going to go well either. They have no exposure to confessions, and you bring this 32 chapter confession to them. And it's going to have things in there that they probably like covenant theology that they've never heard about. That's going to be overwhelming. So I think, and those are all good things. I think it is a pastor should desire to introduce his church to covenants, to creeds, to catechisms, to confessions. But make sure that the first thing you're committed to is giving them the word of God. You use all those tools as guides for you and your prep and slowly introduce them. So I think probably for most guys, those kinds of hills are going to be usually dealing with how the service on Sunday goes and, you know, making some changes there is, is going to be difficult. But also again, that's where you teaching them biblical worship is important. And here's something else. History is your friend. No church history, no Baptist history. And when you try to introduce things that are quote unquote new, you can show them, I know this is new to us, but I want you to know that our heritage, by call ourselves Baptist, our heritage includes these things. They've been lost. Let's recover them. And I think too that you've got to emphasize the fight that we always face as pastors is that we're building a little kingdom of our own. This is not my little kingdom. We are a covenant community in this together. I'm a pastor of a church. I'm also a member of that church, and I need to remember that. And we need to make sure that we make this feel like we're in this together. It's not just me up here shoving people to do it. We're walking together. I'm in the lead because I am a shepherd here, but... We're doing this as as one body. Well, that transitions us well to our next part of the conversation. Uh, you've mentioned some of the things that pastors will go through as they revitalize, uh, attempt to revitalize the church and the, their leadership efforts. But uh, let's move the conversation more towards the member, as you just alluded to, as the pastor is a member of the church. What are some of the challenges or uh, hardships, perhaps, that members will go through as uh, they go through a revitalization? And what will be the benefits of sticking it out through uh, faithful attendance and obedience as the church does revitalize? I think one of the hardest things, I think two things first. Number one, you have to basically understand that if you're coming into a church revitalization situation, something happened that caused that church to be in the condition it's in. And for those members who are still there, you know, they're going to cherish the pastors, the people, the things that happened years back. And as you're coming in and you're teaching things that are, are new to them, there's a struggle that goes on internally that's going to be thinking, does this mean that a lot of what I was taught or told over the years was wrong? You know, personally speaking, I had I came to that conclusion 
probably about 90% of the stuff I heard wasn't biblical. Now, that's not easy. It doesn't mean you don't love those people, but you got to think that mentally is draining to think about for a minute. So you've got to be patient. Now, that doesn't mean that you you can't stand up there and say, all your other pastors were wrong and I'm right. Okay? That is not the way to go. But you've got to understand that there is going to be times where that's going to come into their mind about were all of these old pastors wrong about stuff? They didn't teach it. They may come up to you and say, well, you know, brother so-and-so, he didn't teach this. Now, how do you respond to that? Now, you probably, if you're like me, your first instinct, which is not spiritual in this situation, but fleshly, might be, well, guess what? I'm not him. Okay. Well, that's not exactly what you want to say, because that's not going to make the conversation go well. But you do want to gently respect that brother who probably was wrong, okay, and say, I respect him, but, but I'm here trying to shepherd this congregation now. And I'm, tr- I'm trying to go by what the word says. Can you show me in the scriptures where you think I'm in error? That's what you always do. Make the scriptures the, the foundation. If anybody's going to po- if you're teaching the Bible and they refuse to hear it, you challenge and say, where, is, where are you coming from in the Bible? So don't make it a personality contest. All right? It is what does the word say? So that's the first thing for members, that they're going to have to maybe walk through that realization that things that we did in the past were wrong. They weren't scriptural. They weren't biblical. Second thing, if you're moving towards more of a meaningful membership covenant church community, it's going to require people to have to feel uncomfortable and really vulnerable because most churches have done a good, and I say that in quotation marks, a good job of demonstrating and teaching that church is made up of individual islands and everybody basically kind of just does what they want to do. We see each other an hour on Sunday, but for the rest of the week, it's my life and what I do. And as long as it's not quote unquote egregious sin, then, you know, I'm left to myself. Now I think all people instinctively want community. We want community. The church is the covenant community. And we have to understand that that means that we can be vulnerable and open to each other. That doesn't mean that we stand up and share everything that we're going through and every struggle and every sin in front of everybody. That's not at all what I'm saying. But there needs to be people in the church that you can be open and raw with and they with you and that we understand we're in this together. That requires a church has to be very gracious. We've got to understand what it means we've been forgiven and shown grace. That means that they need to be able to respect the pastor, that what they share with him and talk to him about, he will not use that in any way to to hurt them. But it also for us as one another, that we are not, you know, in this to try to belittle or to make ourselves feel more superior. We've all got warts and we've all got past We've all got present problems, and we've all got future difficulties. We're not called to shoulder those things alone. And a lot of the great spiritual damage that has happened in the church is because people think they are carrying it alone. 
And that's, I promise you, with whatever you're dealing with or struggling with in a church, individually, I will guarantee you there probably is somebody else in that congregation who's dealing with something similar. And now that requires that you're willing to be, that you want the church to be more than a social club. That you actually, when it says we will bear one another's burdens, we're actually going to do that. And it's messy sometimes. And it's hard. And look, I tell you that I've, you know, counseling situations and all, they are, that's not fun at all. It isn't. But short term, it's unpleasant. But long term, it will produce and yield a good harvest of righteous fruit. What encouragements do you have or, or would you give to pastors who, who are currently praying and, and laboring to see a local church revitalized? And, and yet, as you know, it's not easy. But what encouragements do you have pa- for pastors who are seeking to lead through this or members who are, are participating along with their pastor and, and praying and striving for these same things? I think one thing that you have to do is beware of comparing what you're doing or where you are to other places. So, for example, we've talked to some about Nine Marks. You may think the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. is the epitome of what a local church should be. Maybe you think Grace Community Church in California, where John MacArthur pastors, is the epitome of what a local church is supposed to be. Well, if you compare where you are to those places, you're going to be in trouble. Because where you pastor is not Capitol Hill or Grace Community. It's wherever you serve or wherever you're a member at. And so, and I say that as somebody who did that a good bit in years past. So I'm not over here saying that, you know, as if I was immune or can still face that battle today. So you need to remember where you are. And... I think I've said it before on this program when I did the episode with y'all on William Carey. I'll say it here again to remember the words of Carey. When I asked what did he do well, he said, I can plod. That's what I can do well. Most of the Christian life can be described as plodding. We just keep pressing forward, putting one foot ahead of it. I think it's good to have some long-term, big-picture ideas, but don't allow that to obscure the day-to-day, week-to-week ministry of the word and sacraments to the saints. Give yourself to the preaching and teaching of the word and knowing your people and spending time with your people. I think that you have to be intentional. And I'll say this, if a church is going to have revitalization, they're going to have to want to spend time with each other. If it's just... We dismiss at noon and everybody's out of the parking lot in five minutes. That's not a healthy sign. We should linger and want to invest in each other and know what's happening with each other. I would also, again, you cannot do it alone. That is why you need to be intentionally discipling men. And you need to be proactive about finding pastors in your area who are on the same biblical, theological page as you. You need it. You need friendship and fellowship. And because you, you, if you feel like you're all alone, it is going to overwhelm you big time. 
So you need to be proactive in that. If you are in a church that's going through this or a pastor, I can't, it's not a cliche. It's the truth. You've got to be patient. Be patient. It's if it's I'll put it this way. If it's going to be, quote unquote, worth anything, it's not going to happen overnight. It is going to take time. We've been on this journey for nine years. We've grown a lot. We've learned a lot. And yet there are things that have happened this year that have shown me just how much I still have to learn and areas I still need to grow in as a pastor. So there's nobody who's arrived or figured it out. And remember the gospel. You need to remember who you are in Jesus Christ. And on your the most difficult and toughest days, you need to remember that you have been adopted by the grace of the Father. You have been united with Christ, who is your prophet, priest, and king, who is interceding on your behalf right now. And the Holy Spirit has been given to you, and he indwells you, and he is a guarantee of the eternal inheritance that awaits you. Nothing. Even the most difficult and hardest trials that you might experience in the pastorate and in the church, they do not overturn or change that eternal reality. So you need to remember that constantly. Amen. Well, as we uh, get ready to wrap up this conversation, what final resources would you recommend for the topic that we've been addressing today? Uh, buy everything that Nine Mark sells, number one. Um, number two, I didn't know about him or his ministry until we had already been a good ways through the journey. But in some of the stuff that I have seen, I definitely recommend uh, Brian Croft, Practical Shepherding, their ministry. A dear brother of mine was a member at Auburndale there in Louisville, or Brian Pastors, and interned there. And I have another good friend who's interning there right now. So the, the, the resources that are available there are, are phenomenal and very helpful. I also want to encourage you to know Baptist history when it comes to ecclesiology. And it's hard to find the hardback, but it is free as a PDF. But I encourage you to check out Polity, which was edited by Mark Dever, which includes a few essays at the beginning and then has a lot of primary source materials of Baptist confessions, Baptist catechisms, covenants, uh, statements on the church. And that will be a friend and a help to you. Um, so those would be um, another good book would be The Mentoring Church by Phil Newton. That's a really good book about mentoring, discipling within the local church. Um, and then I would say. One of the first things you need to do is a men's study. And you need to pick, you got to know who your people are, but find some good short books that are easy to read and discuss. And, and make it, you know, you have to work, you have to know people, but work to get it to where they will interact with you. It's not just you sitting there talking about the book. But you ask them questions. What did you think? Did that makes sense? Did you disagree? But you really need to start pouring into men and fostering a community where men believe they can share and open up and talk. I think we are in a crisis right now in a lot of ways because 
men in churches don't know how to be friends with each other. And we don't know what biblical friendship looks like. Pastors don't know what it looks like. And a lot of male members don't know what it looks like. We need that. All through scripture and through church history, we see it. Examples after examples of good, solid biblical friendships. We need to help recover that in the local church. Well, Jake, we thank you for taking your time today to discuss this important topic. I'm certain that it will be a help to all of our listeners. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you all for having me again. Enjoyed it.